Good morning, and thank you for tuning in again today. Uh, as always, I hope this video finds that you and your families are doing well. My name is David Creech, and I'm with Northfield Boulevard Church of Christ in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. You can see the times of our services on the screen here, and you can check out our website at www.godsredeemed.org. And the website also has the times of our services. <clears throat> Today we're going to be continuing in our uh, study of the New Testament book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. And if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and be turning over to Acts chapter 6, and we'll pick up there shortly. <clears throat> uh, by way of review, last week we saw Peter and John arrested there in the first part of Acts chapter 4, and they're brought before the Sanhedrin, that religious council of, of elders consisting of scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees, with the high priest, in this case Annas, as the, the leader or the president of that council. Uh, they were let go, but, but only after being severely threatened not to speak or to teach anymore in the name of Jesus. We saw continued growth of the church. Uh, Acts chapter 4 and verse 4, it, it is said that the number of men came to be about 5,000. And then in Acts chapter 5 and verse 14, that believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. <clears throat> we saw members of that church sharing their possessions in, in order to meet a specific need. We saw an example of the right way to do that near the end of chapter 4 with Joseph, who was uh, called Barnabas by the apostles, a name that means son of encouragement. And there in the first part of chapter 5, we, see, we saw an example of the wrong way to do that with a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. And they attempted to deceive the apostles with their gift. Peter made the point that they had not lied to men, but to God. And they were subsequently struck down by the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 17, we saw Peter and the apostles imprisoned again, uh, but this time freed by an angel. And they were brought before the council again. And and, and asked why they'd been doing what they were commanded not to do, which was simply preaching the things that they had seen Jesus do and the things that they had heard him say. And their answer to the council was, we ought to obey God rather than men. And, and finally, we saw a member of the council, the Sanhedrin, stand up and offer some sound advice. Do you remember his name? Gamaliel. His advice was, leave these men alone. If this, if this work is from men, it will come to nothing. If it is from God, you cannot overthrow it. We closed out last week's lesson by asking the question, did they listen? Did they heed Gamaliel's advice? And we answered, absolutely not. I mean, over in Acts chapter 5 and verse 40, uh, it says that they, the council, agreed with Gamaliel. But did they really leave Peter and the apostles alone? No. Verse 40 says they beat them and commanded them 
not to speak in the name of Jesus and then let them go. And, and despite being beaten, uh, 41 says they departed the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Now, now did Peter and the apostles heed the, the command, the warning from the council? Nope. Verse 42 says that daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. I mean, think about it. With the, with the COVID-19 pandemic, there's been a lot of talk in recent weeks, uh, months now, I think, about flattening the curve so that medical resources were not overwhelmed. But, but there's no flattening of the curve here. We're talking about a huge number of converts to Christianity over a short period of time. In this case, that's a good problem to have, isn't it? Uh, just keep in mind that the apostles really had their hands full in prayer and in the ministry of the word. And that's going to come into play in today's lesson. <clears throat> so today in chapters 6 and 7, we're going to see some men chosen to serve in a specific capacity. And, and we're going to talk about how one of those men, Stephen, is falsely accused of blasphemy. Uh, furthermore, not only is he falsely accused, but he's unjustly tried, he's wrongfully convicted, he's he's brutally killed for crimes he didn't commit. And where have we seen that before? As I stated back in our overview of the first 12 chapters, the, the thing in this story that has always interested me the most is, is what Stephen saw and what Stephen said while this was happening to him. And we'll talk about that in today's lesson. So I want to begin here by reading from Acts chapter 6 in the first four verses. It says, Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve, that's the apostles, summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. <clears throat> Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. <clears throat> okay, so there, there's still this need among the Christians in Jerusalem. We, we talked about the that need in the last lesson, so we'll not repeat it here, uh, except to repeat how the need was being met. So some Christians were selling property uh, that included land and houses and, and laying money at the apostles' feet. The, the money was there for the apostles to use as they saw fit. So with the apostles teaching daily in the temple and from house to house, while at the same time trying to coordinate what verse 1 calls a daily distribution. Now that's the phrase in the New King James Version. Uh, if you have a, uh, an older King James Version, it might say the daily ministration. Or if you have a New American Standard, it might say the daily serving of food. So with the, the apostles trying to do all that they were doing, is it any wonder that the needs of some were being neglected. 
Now that unmet need resulted in a complaint being brought by one group of Christians against another group. Uh, what uh, the New King James Version here calls the Hellenists and the Hebrews. Now the older King James Version will say the Grecians and the Hebrews. New American Standard says the Hellenistic Jews and the native Hebrews. The NIV says Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews. And the New, New Living Translation says Greek-speaking believers and Hebrew-speaking believers. So, in, in case you're interested, the word Hellenism is used to describe the civilization and culture of Greece. In the ancient Greek language, the name of Greece was Hellas, which is where the word Hellenism comes from. And uh, the name Helen, as a matter of fact, is of Greek origin and, and means radiance. It's, it's been applied to a kind of radiant beauty, if you'll recall, Helen of Troy. So in very general terms, those Jews that were born or possibly raised outside Palestine and spoke the Greek language were called Hellenists or Grecians. Those Jews born inside Palestine and spoke the native Hebrew language were called Hebrews or uh, Hebraic Jews, as the NIV puts it. And, and so that kind of explains some of the differences we see there in the various translations. And in this case, the, the New Living Translation makes it very plain that we're talking about Greek-speaking believers and Hebrew-speaking believers. So the complaint arises from the Greek-speaking Christians and is against the Hebrew-speaking Christians. And first let me say something about that word complain here in verse 1 and complaining in general. The word complaint here is from a Greek word that means to grumble or to murmur or to complain. In fact, the various translations use these different words. We could do a whole lesson just looking at examples from the Bible where God's people grumbled or murmured or complained about something and, and we can see how God felt about that. Long story short, though, God doesn't like it. Although it's not necessarily brought out here in the context, uh, this would have been no different. When, when our focus is on what we don't have, it's easy to get caught up in grumbling and complaining. But, but when our focus is where it should be, when our focus is on what we do have and, and how good we really have it or, or how good we are going to have it in eternity... There really shouldn't be any room for grumbling and complaining, only thanksgiving. And someone once said that the closer we get to God, the smaller everything else appears. And, and that is so true. Uh, Paul reminded the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 14, do all things without complaining. You know, not, not do some things or do most things without complaining, but do all things without complaining. Uh, I know that can be hard to do, but that, that should be our goal. Now look, having said that, there's a big difference between grumbling or complaining and actively seeking a resolution to a problem. 
And, and I'm not saying that grumbling and complaining doesn't work. Uh, sometimes it does work. E even in this instance, the grumbling and complaining eventually reaches the ears of the apostles. And as we'll see, the problem was solved. But, but God doesn't like grumbling and complaining. As Christians, we should never be engaged in it. And there are ways to solve problems without resorting to it. So what was the problem here in Acts chapter 6 and verse 1 in the following verses that needed to be solved? You know, a problem that could have been solved without the initial grumbling and complaining. Well, the problem was that the widows among the Greek-speaking Christians were being neglected in the daily distribution. And that, that's all we know. Uh, we might like to know more. Why were these Greek-speaking widows there in the first place? Did they live in this area, or were they part of the pilgrimage that the men made from distant lands? Did they not have families to help take care of them? Uh, again, we might like to know more. We might even speculate on some of these things, but this is all we know, that among the needy Christians there in Jerusalem were Greek-speaking widows that either were not getting their fair share of the daily distribution or were being overlooked altogether. Either, either one of those would not have been a good thing. So what was this daily distribution? Or uh, like I mentioned earlier, if you have an older King James Version, it may say a daily ministration. Well, the apostles' response in verse 2, when they say it's not desirable that we should leave the Word of God and serve tables, uh, leads us to believe it had something to do with the daily distribution of food. Some other translations, like the New American Standard and the NIV, make it a little, little clearer by, by coming right out and saying in verse 1 that the widows were neglected in the daily serving or the daily distribution of food. So, uh, so what do the apostles do about it? Well, they had seven men appointed specifically to serve in this capacity. Um, uh, again, why was it necessary? Well, don't forget the multitudes of new converts to Christianity and the absolute necessity for the apostles to continue in prayer and to continue preaching and teaching daily in the temple and from house to house. I'm uh, reminded of a similar instance where a man of God was becoming overwhelmed with work and, and similar measures were taken. Turn with me in your Bibles over to Exodus chapter 18. Beginning in verse 13, we see Moses and the Israelites had just arrived at Mount Sinai. Um, how many people are there? Well, Numbers chapter 1 and verse 46 tells us there were 600,000 plus men. So if you counted women and children, you know, possibly uh, 2 million people or more are gathered around Mount Sinai. And let me just read this passage. It's a little bit of a lengthy reading, but it'll go pretty quickly. Exodus chapter 18, verses 13 through 22. <clears throat> and so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. So when Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, saw all that he did for the people, he said, What is this thing that you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to inquire of God. They come to me to inquire of God. When they have a difficulty, 
they come to me, and I judge between one and another, and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, The thing that you do is not good. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out, for this thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel, and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people, so that you may bring the difficulties to God. And you shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all times, then it will be that every great matter they will bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. So as Jethro points out to Moses, uh, there were more important things for Moses to be focusing on, standing before God for the people, teaching them the statutes and the laws of God, showing them the way they must walk and the work they must do. In, in Acts chapter 6, we see the same thing happening with, with men being appointed to serve in a specific capacity so that the apostles could devote themselves, it says in verse 4, continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And note in verse 3 the, that there were qualifications for these men. Uh, first of all, they, they had to be men. <laughs> uh, but also they had to be men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, and full of wisdom. And notice from verse 6 that that we see the apostles doing something for the very first time. They laid hands on them, that is, these seven men chosen for the work, the seven men identified in verse 5. Prior to this, we don't see the apostles laying their hands on anyone. Uh, the, The apostles had been baptized by the Holy Spirit back in Acts 2, and from that event, they you know, recall that they received power, power that included the ability to speak in foreign languages and to perform miracles, signs, and wonders. But, but notice, if you will, and, and if you don't believe me, go back and read the first five chapters, that up to this point, only the apostles are doing these things. Uh, recall from the last chapter in, uh, in, in Acts 5 and verse 12. Let me jump over that real quick. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. Uh, no one else other than the apostles is mentioned as doing these things. You know, multitudes of people had become Christians between Acts 2 and Acts 6 here. But only the apostles have these gifts of the Holy Spirit. And remember back in one of our previous lessons, we said that these gifts of the Holy Spirit could only be passed to people by the apostles through the laying on of hands. 
and I know my head's kind of in the way on the slide there, by the apostles through the laying on of hands. Now someone might say, well, wait a minute. It says here in Acts chapter 6 and verse 3, we'll jump back over to that, that they were to seek out seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Doesn't that mean that they had received these gifts from the Holy Spirit? Um, no, a, a person can have a good reputation and a person can be full of the Holy Spirit and can be full of wisdom without having those things imparted through the laying on of hands. In fact, in the, exactly the same way, a person today can have a good reputation, can be full of the Holy Spirit, can be full of wisdom, even though the apostles aren't alive today, to lay their hands on us and give us those qualities. Uh, those gifts of the Holy Spirit that did come through the laying on of the apostles' hands was, was often an increased measure of those things, whether it was knowledge or wisdom, faith, and so forth. So the disciples choose seven men that meet these qualifications, set them before the apostles, and verse 6, as we pointed out earlier, says that they laid hands on them. And by the way, these verses are sometimes referenced in discussions about deacons in the church. Well, we don't have... Um, we won't take the time this morning to talk about the organization of the New Testament church, except to say that there were elders and there were deacons. Uh, how do I know that? Well, because there are qualifications given for elders and deacons. If we look over in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1 and following, uh, you'll notice the, the title there, uh, that's sort of the paragraph title in my New King James Version, says qualifications of overseers. And you see the words I have highlighted in red there, the word bishop. Um, the Greek word there is is the word episkopos, and, and that can be translated as bishop, elder, or overseer. And various translations will even use those different words. But we see here the list of qualifications for these elders or bishops or overseers. They must be blameless, the husband of one wife, and so forth. And if we scroll down to verse 8, we likewise we see qualifications of deacons. Uh, there's a list of qualifications there. Also over in Titus chapter 1 and verse 5, we see qualifications for elders. And notice what I have highlighted in, in purple there. Verse 5 uses the word elders, and verse 7, the word bishop here in the New King James Version. They're both the same Greek word, episkopos, okay? If we look back in today's set of passages, let's jump back over to Acts chapter 6, the first part there. The, the last word in Acts chapter 6 and verse 1 is distribution, or as I mentioned earlier, the older King James Version might say ministration. That word comes from the Greek word diakonos, which means to serve. Uh, in fact, that word ministration, if you have a King James Version, uh, the, the root word of that is the same as for the, the word ministry, which means to serve. And so then it shouldn't come as a surprise to us in the last part of verse 2, where it says, and serve tables, that the word serve is the same word, diakonos. And yes, 
it's the same word we get our English word deacon from. Now, there, there is a sense that we should all be diaconos. We should all be willing to serve, to serve others, to serve one another. Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28, our ultimate example, Jesus himself said that he did not come to be served, but to serve. And that's the same word, diaconos. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13, the last part of that verse says, through love, serve one another. Again, it's that word diakonos. But, but here in Acts chapter 6, as over in 1 Timothy 3, there are specific qualifications that are set down for the selection of men to serve in a specific capacity. So uh, I certainly wouldn't disagree with anyone using Acts 6 as talking points for the role of deacon in the church. It seems to be a foundational principle that is set down here. Just know that the qualifications for these men here in Acts 6 for this specific work is different from those qualifications mentioned in 1 Timothy 3, where, where it's specifically talking about appointing deacons. Now, among these seven men listed in verse 5, are uh, Stephen and Philip, and, and I'm singling them out simply because we're going to hear more about them and the things that they're doing, um, which now included the performing of miracles and signs and wonders. In fact, we'll talk about uh, Stephen for the remainder of this chapter and all of chapter 7, and we'll talk about Philip over in chapter 8. But before we talk about Stephen, I, I want to point out what it says in Acts chapter 6 and verse 7. It says, Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. A couple of things from this verse. Re regarding that first point, that the disciples multiplied greatly. Note that when the church started in Acts chapter 2, people were added to the church. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 14, people were increasingly added to the church. By the time we get to Acts chapter 6 and verse 1, they were no longer adding but multiplying the number of disciples. And then here in verse 7, it says that the number of disciples was multiplied greatly. So just keep that in mind as we are witnessing almost exponential growth in the church. <clears throat> And that second part of what I have in bold on the screen here, a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. You know, it's easy to kind of gloss over the impact of that statement. Sure, there were priests among the throngs of people who heard this gospel message and who witnessed the same signs and wonders as everyone else. And like many of the people, they believed as well. So what's so impactful Someone might ask about that. Well, when it came to the priests, many of them, and maybe all of them, would have been Sadducees. Remember we talked about that particular sect of Judaism. Uh, does anybody remember what was particular about the Sadducees? The Sadducees were sad, you see. And why? Because they did not believe in the resurrection. That was the memory aid that we used. 
So, so this is huge, and, and not just a few priests, but it says here that a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And you can rest assured that did not go unnoticed by the Sanhedrin. Remember, the, the, the president of the Sanhedrin was a Sadducee himself, the high priest. And we could spend some time talking about those last four words right there in verse 7. You know, what does it mean to be obedient to the faith? But in the interest of time, for now anyway, we'll keep going. <clears throat> Acts chapter 6 and verse 8 says, uh, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Now, how was Stephen able to do that? What had just happened that gave Stephen those abilities? Well, recall from verse 6 that the apostles laid hands on them, imparting these gifts of the Holy Spirit to them. And in verse 9, we see that there are some men who are disputing with Stephen. Uh, that's the, the word used here in the New King James Version. Uh, the New American Standard says arguing. The New Living Translation says debating. Now those words, disputing, arguing, debating, they tend to conjure up in our minds perhaps an image of a group of men with raised voices and in a, in a heated discussion. But I don't think that's necessarily the case. The Greek word that is used here simply means to reason together. You know, certainly it has been said that we ought to be able to disagree without being disagreeable. But it says in verse 10 uh, that these men, who are described in verse 9 as being from the synagogue of the freedmen, uh, these men were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which Stephen spoke. And, and by the way, the synagogue of the freedmen, that, that's what's used in a lot of the translations. But if you have the older King James Version, it'll say the synagogue of the Libertines. Uh, this appears to be a synagogue of Jews that, that were once captives or slaves of the Roman Empire, or, or perhaps descendants of those who had been, and then subsequently set free or set at liberty. So, as has happened so often down through the years, men with hardened hearts are able to resist even resistless logic simply because it goes against what they've been taught all their lives. But refusing to believe the truth is one thing. We're all free to do that if we choose. But with these men, unable to resist the wisdom by which Stephen spoke, escalated this to a whole new level. And verse 11 says that they secretly induced men to lie, to say that they'd heard Stephen speak blasphemous things against Moses and against God. Uh, some translations say uh, secretly instigated or secretly persuaded. Uh, uh, one translation actually comes right out and says that they bribed some men to say these things. Uh, <clears throat> Some of the older translations say that they suborned men. Now that word suborn 
is not a word most of us use very much or, or even hear a lot. Perhaps if you watch shows like Law and Order, you may have heard the phrase subornation of perjury. Let me dip my head down a little bit so you can see that on the slide there. Subornation of perjury. T to get up on a witness stand and lie, well, that's called perjury, and that's bad enough. But, but to pay someone to get up on a witness stand and lie would be subornation of perjury. The person who paid the witness to lie is then said to have suborned that witness into committing perjury. And by the way, subornation of perjury would also include not just paying someone to lie, but persuading someone to lie, either through force or some other means like blackmail. And, and so that's why some of the translations use the word persuaded there. But because of the lies that these men were spreading, you know, verse 12 says they stirred, they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, Stephen, seized him and brought him to the council. Again, most likely the, the Sanhedrin that we've already talked about. Verse 13 says that more false witnesses are brought forth. Witnesses that confirm the so-called blasphemous words of Stephen against the holy place, that is the temple, and against the law. Um, <clears throat> we can see here how easy it is for someone to create a falsehood by simply telling part of the truth. In, in verse 14, the witnesses state that they have heard Stephen talk about Jesus of Nazareth, destroying the temple and changing the customs that Moses delivered. Was there any truth to that? Well, absolutely there was. Jesus did say that he would destroy the temple and in three days would build it up again. You know, what an absurd thought in the minds of many, though, that Jesus could destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days because John chapter 2 and verse 20 tells us that it, it had taken 46 years to build this temple. And, and by the way, this temple is one we sometimes refer to as Herod's temple because it was Herod who commissioned its restoration and that had been 46 years in the process. You know, even as Jesus hung on the cross, his, his hecklers... Uh, those that were mocking him in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 40, use those very words against him as they yell out, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Of course, Jesus was speaking figuratively about destroying the purpose for that physical temple and in three days putting a spiritual temple in its place. Were the customs of Moses changed? Absolutely, they were. Paul would later state in his letter to the church at Colossae, in uh, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14, that the old law was nailed to the cross and was replaced by a new and more complete law, a law that James referred to as the perfect law of liberty over in James chapter 1 and verse 25. But, but these false witnesses 
by by leaving out the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say, by leaving out the context around which those things were stated, they're able to inflame the emotions of the council uh, on what was undoubtedly a very sensitive topic. You know, we see so much of the same thing today in politics. It's not so much what is said, but what is not said. The, the details that are conveniently left out in order to spin the story a certain way in the minds of the hearers. And, and by the way, we, we need to be very careful as Christians that we, we don't take that spin, that misinformation, and pass it along to others. And unfortunately, um, we, we see the same thing in religion today, where only a part of the truth is told or revealed. There is a, a temptation to pick and choose or emphasize certain verses, the ones that support our way of thinking or what we've always believed, and to ignore the rest of what the Holy Spirit has to say on a particular topic. Uh, but I digress. Uh, after the high priest, in the first verse of Acts chapter 7, asks, are these things so? And Stephen launches into his defense. And, and time won't allow us to cover all of Stephen's defense here. I encourage you to go back and, and read the entire uh, sermon, the entire presentation he makes. You will see that um, rather than trying to make a persuasive argument in favor of Christianity, it's more of an indictment against these scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees of the Sanhedrin. He, he begins with, with Abraham and reminds them of their Jewish history. He points out how their forefathers had always rejected the leaders that God had chosen for them. Joseph, Moses, the prophets. He, he tells them that by rejecting the leaders that God had chosen for them, their forefathers were rejecting God himself. And now, by rejecting Christ, they were following the same pattern of rejection and rebellion against God. In fact, Stephen rebukes this council uh, over in Acts chapter 7 and verse 51, calling them out as stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, specifically stating that they were doing the same thing that their fathers did, resisting the Holy Spirit. It has been said that every time the gospel is preached, it serves its intended purpose. When, when the seed of truth falls on good and honest hearts, as it did in Acts chapter 2, those hearts were pierced or cut, and, and it drives men to ask the question, what must I do? On the other hand, when the seed falls on hardened hearts, as it does here in Acts chapter 7, those, those hearts are likewise cut, as we see in verse 54, and that causes them, as we see in verse 57, to stop their ears. In other words, they've heard all they want to hear, and they don't want to hear anymore. So in both instances where the gospel message was preached, the hearers were cut to the heart. Some for good, some for bad. And here in Acts chapter 7 and verse 54, 
This cutting of the heart was bad enough that they gnashed at him with their teeth. That's what the New King James Version says. The older King James Version says they, they gnashed on him with their teeth. Now, uh, admittedly, that seems like a strange way to put it. Uh, we're not talking about an angry mob of cannibals here. Um, some other translations say that they ground their teeth at him. Uh, if, if we look at the Greek word that's translated as uh, you know, gnashed here, it, it does in fact refer to a grating of the teeth. I mean, have you ever been so angry about something or, 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 or faced with something so unpleasant that it caused you to just grit your teeth? That's what we're talking about here. So not only did they, they grit their teeth, but verse 57 says they cried out with a loud voice. And, and remember, the Sanhedrin was composed of about 70 men. So, so what a loud voice that would have been. And they, they ran at him with one accord. Try to picture the commotion of that scene. And in verse 58, it says they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. Now, <clears throat> As this is going on, Luke also records for us in the last part of, of uh, verse 58 the fact that these men did something with their clothes. That's the word used in the New King James Version. Other translations say garments or robes. Uh, the idea here is not that they stripped naked before stoning Stephen, but that they removed their outer garments. Uh, no doubt so as to be less restrictive for the task at hand. Uh, I mean, let's face it, uh, stoning someone had to be a lot of work. And, and I can't imagine being on the receiving end of something like that. I got hit in the head with a softball one time, and that was bad enough. And maybe that explains a few things. But uh, there in verse 58... Notice what they did with those garments. They, they laid them at, a feet, at the feet of a man named Saul. It actually says a young man named Saul. Um, next week, by the way, we're going to pick up talking about that same Saul. But before we bring this lesson to a close, just a couple more minutes here, I, I mentioned previously something about this story that's always fascinated me, and that's what Stephen saw and what Stephen said during all of this. What does Stephen see? Well, if we back up to verse 55, it says that he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, this is the only time the Bible speaks of Jesus standing rather than sitting at God's right hand. Now, picture Jesus sitting at the right hand of God and the, the doors of heaven open up upon this scene for Stephen alone to see, and Jesus, knowing what is about to happen, stands up. Uh, we're not told why he's standing, and, and I don't want to make more of this than is intended, but I can't help but think this is just a show of support for this man of God who loved Jesus with every fiber of his being and is about to give his life for Jesus. Now, what did Jesus say? Well, two phrases there in verses uh, 59 and 60. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And Lord, do not charge them with this sin. 
Do those words sound familiar at all? They should. They're, they're very much like some of the same words Jesus uttered on the cross. And we're out of time for today. Once again, thank you for watching or listening, whichever the case may be. Tune in next week, and Lord willing, we'll get into chapter 8, where, uh, where we'll talk about Saul, and we'll talk about how the church spreads from Jerusalem to the surrounding areas of Judea and Samaria. And we'll talk about Philip, Simon the sorcerer, and the Ethiopian eunuch. Thank you.